0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusler coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's a warm and sunny day today in Los Angeles. What you're about to hear is Class Four, Part Two. This is a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. The title of the class was called "The Buddhist." Eightfold Path, The Way to Happiness. It was a five-week course. So this is week number four, class four, part two. So we were talking about the first two parts. The first part was uh, impermanence. The second part was unsatisfactory. And now in our meditation practice, we want to find the third part, which is not self. We want to see, and don't take this wrong, but we want to see if if we have a soul or not. Wow. What's our essence? What is that part of us that doesn't change? That part of us that's been with us since birth, and we can still find it even today, whether it be that little voice in our head or that, that certain perspective that we've always carried with us or attitude we've had and... Uh, and so now in our meditation practice, we're going to be looking for the quality of who we really are. Where does that live? Having said that, one of my favorite books is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And they talk about that in that book. It's, it's sort of hidden. It's not right out like I'm talking about it. But, but in the book, the author uh, is a professor in Montana and one of his classes he gave the assignment. He said, I want you to pick anything you want, chair, car, wall, flower, and I want you to talk about the quality of that thing. As many words as you want to use, describe the quality of the flower or the chair or the car. And not one student came back with a paper. They all failed. They said, we know the quality we sense the quality we understand that maybe Mercedes has more quality than a Ford but when it comes to describing it we can't find it we can't find it and we can't find the words and i'm reading this book and i hadn't ever thought about that before in that way and i'm going that is so cool because I struggle for years on not self. When I first read in Buddhism about emptiness, I said to myself, "What are they talking about? What is this emptiness? Is it the glass is empty? Where does this? What is it?" And I would ask people, and I would ask knowledgeable people, knowledgeable people and they would give me. Wonderful answers, but it still made absolutely no sense to me. And I struggled for years, literally years, until one day, true story, Bodhi Tree used Bookstore. My hand just reached for a book on the shelf, and it came up, Spectrum of Consciousness, Ken Wilber. Dog-eared, marked a lot, less than half price, Okay. I opened it up and I started to read some of the stuff. I'm going, this is what I need. This is what I need. And I bought it. I took it. I read it. And that allowed me to understand about Not Self. It was his very first book. He was 23 years old, working on his PhD and a dishwasher in a restaurant. I mean, it's just, you couldn't have a better movie than that. And he sat down and wrote this book, and he talked about the spectrum of consciousness, the different levels of consciousness. And I said, okay, I got it. I know what they're talking about now. But let's go back to Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. I wish they would have done this. Because in the story, the author had a Honda Superhawk 400, motorcycle and his buddy had an R80 BMW now his buddy always felt the BMW had much more quality because of the German engineering and I wish they would have done this in the book it would have made it even better that say to both of them okay I want you to take your Honda and your BMW and go out and find a Kmart parking lot and we'll give you the tools and you take apart your motorcycles into their 10,000 pieces and we'll give each one of you a magnifying glass, and I want you to find the quality of your motorcycle. Because I want to see the quality of the Honda, and I want to see the quality of the BMW, and I want to see which one has a better quality. So now in my mind, I imagine them going out and looking through all those bits and pieces of the motorcycles for the quality. Somehow, when you take one... And make many, quality vanishes. It goes away. And yet, when you take the 10,000 pieces and make one, quality arises. Essence arises. Soul arises. Self arises. It seems to be a product of one, not a product of many. Okay, so now I'm working on this, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, that's it. So as long as I see me as me, as one, as I, as mine, whatever word you want to use, I've got quality. I've got an essence. I've got a soul. But when I start to look in each little individual part of who I think I am, I come up with emptiness. Emptiness of independent existence. That's what they were talking about. That's what I couldn't get. That's what I couldn't understand about emptiness. They were saying, empty of independent existence. They were saying, nothing can exist independently. They were saying, everything is conditional. I couldn't see it. I couldn't hear it. Nobody explained it to me in that way. And then, because of that book, and my persistence... I got it, that I can't exist independently. I am conditional. I need a certain amount of water every day to live. If my water is taken away for five or six days, I'm a goner. That's not independence. If they take my food away for 40 or 50 days, I'm a goner. That's not independence. If they take my air away for five or six minutes, I'm a goner. So I can't exist independently. This idea of one separate from everything else is a delusion. We all made it up. We're in conspiracy with each other to exist independently. I see you, you see me. But we're not one. We're always separate. Sometimes if we love each other, we think we're one until we don't love each other and then we know we're separate (laughs) so this idea of oneness is sort of in the fabric of our perception of the world and at some point one became the thing to be at some point one became the ultimate number I've got to blame monotheism a little bit for that Because we were fine back in the old days with many gods and deities and feminine and masculine and there was just so much stuff. Everything was magical and alive. We had the rivers and the streams and the sun and the moon. Every one of those things were deities and magical and special. And then, then it was one and it turned out to be a patriarchal one. Wow. If that doesn't... Put you in a bummer. I don't know what does. <laughs> so now we're in this sort of postmodern age, they say. Now we're questioning the one. Now we're trying to see what makes the one up. And we're deconstructing the world around us in a very real way. And what are we finding? We're finding a bunch of pieces that are connected. We've lost that one. One doesn't have the same value in 2007 than it did in 1927. But in that, we have much more freedom, because what we've gone from is uniformity to unity and diversity. If one isn't the best, that allows us, I suppose, to be who we think we need to be, and yet still connected to everyone around us. And it allows us to look within ourselves and be comfortable with the idea of not existing independently. That in fact, the ultimate level of reality according to Buddhism is that we are always interconnected and interdependent. None of us are ever separate from each other. It is an illusion. It is a function of self, of ego, which allows us to identify, categorize, critique, criticize, be separate from be able to manipulate, to have power over. And and it works great. If I'm not the door, I can leave. If I'm the door, I'm here forever. Wow. So I've got to be different than the door. So I can use the door. I have to be different from the car so I can drive the car. If I'm one with the car, I can't even drive it because there's no car to drive. So the function of ego, seems to me, allows us to separate the fabric of the universe and bring certain items to the forefront and use them for our good and the good of others sometimes, or maybe not so good sometimes. And if we lose that ability, we become non-functional. We have like Alzheimer's and we go back into the fabric of the universe and we're all one with everything and now people have to take care of us because we don't know where the door is anymore. We don't know what a shoe is because we're one with the shoe, we're one with the door. We've gone back to that sort of primordial oneness from whence we came. That's how we started. According to the spectrum of consciousness in Ken Wilber, he talked about the evolution of a human being and how when we're born, we are one, literally one with everything. And then all of a sudden, mom becomes separate. Somebody else is in the room. Well, I thought the universe took care of me. No, mom takes care of you. And there she is right over there. Wow, where did she come from? And now I have a hand too. I wonder how I can use that in my life. And we keep separating ourselves and separating ourselves. Then our parents send us to school and they give us a whole vocabulary of 10,000 ways to separate ourselves from the world around us. And all the while, we're becoming a little uncomfortable because we're starting to feel lonely. I'm separate now from this world in 30, 40, 50,000 ways, depending on the size of my vocabulary and my personal experiences. How can I ever feel comfortable being separate in that many ways? I want to go back. I want to go back to that primordial oneness. It was so cool because every time I cried, the universe took care of me. It changed me and fed me. It made me feel safe and comfortable. Now I cry and they tell me to shut up. I want to go back. And Buddhism says you can never go back. And Ken Wilber says you can never go back. That's a category error. We can't forget everything we've learned. We can't go back to that kind of oneness. What we need to do is transcend this duality and go to that place of unity. It's transcendence, it's not descendence. And then we can use all the stuff we've learned in that sort of transcendent reality. But we don't forget anything. We just have come to the conclusion that we're not it anymore. That's not who we need to be. That's not who we are. We have come to the place of true emptiness, according to Buddhism. We are no longer separate. We are connected. We have unity. We don't have uniformity. Most cool. So here you are, looking at all those sensations, trying to find the quality, the essence, the soul of those sensations and when you look really carefully you keep coming up with nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. It always turns out to be emptiness. And then you apply that same observation to the world around you. But you gotta be careful now because you can go really weird if you keep looking at all these things and not find it. You keep like looking at your mom and saying, Mom, who are you really? Where do you live? Who are you? And she's empty. Wow, and now the car that you've been driving and making those payments on for years, where does it live? Where does it exist? What part of it is the soul, the essence? And then you look in the mirror one day and you have courage and you say, okay, where do I live? Where do I exist? I'm going to look carefully to find out. And there's no one home. And yet you still talk, and you still walk, and you still think, and you still interact. But there's no one doing it anymore, in the same way that used to happen. And then you say to yourself, well, if there's really no one there, why do I need to defend myself if somebody says this about me or that about me? Because there's no me to defend. And in fact, there's no one criticizing me as well. Because they don't exist in the way they think they do. And I've seen in my own reality that I don't exist in the way I thought I did. So I don't need to defend myself because there's no one criticizing me. There's just a bunch of stuff happening, and it's all connected. But I can't live that way because people will think that I need some therapy. So I need to be the picture on my driver's license. If I'm pulled over and the officer comes and says, I'd like to see your driver's license, registration, insurance, and I show him my driver's license and say to him, You know, this really isn't who I am. We're connected, we're both empty. He might take me in. So I've got to pretend, in a very real way, to be who that picture says I am. I have to own those experiences of my life and put them into a story, the story of my life. Well, who are you really? Well, I was born here, and I went to school there, and I had this job here, and I did this, and and that's who I am. Those are the stories of my life. And where is that person now who had all those stories, who had all those experiences? Well, that person's dead. He died a long time ago, but he's part of my lineage. Those are my ancestors, and my ancestors gave me these stories, the stories of when I was 5 and when I was 10 and when I was 20. Those are the stories that my ancestors gave me. And now I'm here, and I'm 50, and I have some new stories that I'll be handing off to the guy who's 60. And then the guy who's 60 will have some new stories to hand off to the guy who's 70. So all along the way, even though we had a sense of being there and doing something and being someone, we were always in transition, we were always in a state of becoming, and we were passing on all the information to the next guy. Just like running a relay race. We hand off the batons and you take it and you run your leg of the relay and then you hand it off. But there's never anyone running or accepting the baton or handing it off. There's no one. But there's a lot of connected phenomena occurring along the way and we call that our life. If you apply that to who you are and what you do, if you apply the unsatisfactoriness that we talked about earlier, the ultimate reality of that, and the impermanence, you become liberated. From what? From needing to be anyone. You no longer need to be a Buddhist, or a man, or a woman. You no longer need to be any of those things. You are now free. You have your choice back. You are now in a new realm, and we would call that nirvana. And that's what the Buddha realized. Those three factors liberated him. We we say he achieved nirvana, and at that point he stopped doing mindfulness meditation. He had reached the end of that technique the end of that technique is nirvana. But until his death, he still did concentration. He still did samatha. And that's what I found so interesting. Because why would he do that? If he had achieved nirvana, if he had ended his suffering, if he had ended his karma, if he had ended all future rebirths, why would he do samatha meditation? What possible good could come out of that? And the good was it was able to bring his body back into balance because nirvana has everything to do with consciousness and nothing to do with this physical form of ours. When you achieve nirvana, you still get old, you still get sick, you still die, but you radically transform your consciousness in a unique and special way. His samatha meditation allowed him to anesthetize the pain and discomfort he found in his body. That never turned into suffering. He had a profound acceptance of the way things were. But he was able to end his pain through Samatha meditation. And it said when he went into the fourth jhana, that's where he died. He was sick. He had dysentery. He had a bad meal. So uncomfortable. And if you've ever had food poisoning, that's that's a tough one to deal with. And here he was invited to a house uh, for an offering. And he got this bad, either pork or mushrooms, depending on the translation. And he knew he was dying. And it said, if you ask the Buddha three times to do something, he'll always do it. But none of the monks asked him three times not to die. None of them figured that out. So he realized he could die now. And... As he was dying, he went to the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, with perfect balance of mind, perfect equanimity. And that's where he left this life behind. So, samatha meditation is something you're going to do your whole life if you start that. Vipassana meditation is something you'll do until you achieve nirvana. And then you can give it up. Two kinds of Buddhist meditation... Tranquility and insight. Samatha and Vipassana. The Buddha did both. So one isn't better than the other. They do have different results. If you're a Buddhist teacher, if you're a yogi and acquire some of the special mind states that come with Samatha meditation, you'll be able to read people's minds. See into the future. See into their past. Now, for the average person, that wouldn't really be very beneficial. I mean, you might be able to go on TV once with that, but you know, people wouldn't be too impressed. But if you were a teacher and you looked at your student and could see all their past karma, you would be the best teacher they ever had because you'd know exactly what to say and how to say it. And that's why the Buddha encouraged his monks to do both kinds of meditation. Not one or the other, but do both. So the foundation of insight became Samatha. And in Reverend Echo's school of Buddhism, they do both together. Serene reflection. Awareness and peacefulness. What a wonderful place to be. Any questions? Did that story make any sense? Were you able to follow it? Aren't you glad I'm recording this? Yes. <laughs> okay. Could you feel it, though? Did it make sense, sort of, seeing the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom and how that could be a liberating factor in your life? But I, 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 I,
1: missed, um, I, I missed a chunk which would have helped me to see clearly
0: What what chunk does it feel like you missed?
1: Okay. Emptiness. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing you're talking about, but I I can't I can't get there with my
0: with my. Baby. It it's really really hard to get there, and and it took me a couple of years. You know, and a lot of books, a lot of meditation, a lot of asking and thinking. It's something that uh, is difficult to to come to grips with because what it's doing is challenging who you really are at the core. And and if you're a Christian, Jew, Muslim, you got a soul. If you're Hindu, you got a soul. If you're most religions, you've got a soul. What do you do with that? Does that mean that you don't have a soul then, according to Buddhism? Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. You can have a soul, according to Buddhism, but what Buddhism is saying is that you're not the soul. You can't use that as who you really are either. Anything you find who you think you really might be, that's not it, even the soul. So when you've exhausted all possibilities of who you are, that can be challenging. Where do you go then? What do you say then? Well, there's actually nothing to say at that point. You just go get a cup of coffee. (laughs) That's, (laughs) That's as good as it gets, you know? There's no cloud separating, you know? There's just, okay... Yeah, and the process continues it always has it will to the last breath you know there's always something to do some place to go someone to be you know so you know uh, today I went to the guitar store to buy some strings I was a customer buying guitar strings okay so that's what I was for a while then I had lunch so I was a guy eating lunch that's what I did for a while then I took a nap The cat was right there with me. So I was a guy napping. That's what I was for a while. Then I get to come here and I get to be in front of the class. Wow, that's fun to be. And then I go back and take the dog for a walk. So I'm the dog walker. Okay. But who is the guy doing all that stuff? Well, it doesn't seem to be anybody there, but it still gets done. The dog gets walked. Lunch gets eaten. Guitar strings get bought still gets done. Wow, that is so cool. But a bit disconcerting, because wouldn't you like to take credit for some of that? <laughs> Especially if it's done well, you know? If it's blame, of course, it's nice to know that you're not really at blame, because there's no one there to blame. But if there's praise, hey, I'll I'll take that. Thank you, you know? I suppose it brings us to a place of lightness with our life, you know? It's not quite as serious as it used to be before we had that insight we, we 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 start to see that that perhaps uh it's more important to be concerned about others rather than the self that doesn't exist and and that's what I have found in spiritual practice, not necessarily my own, even though I volunteer a lot but but people who are spiritually advanced, seem to be selfless in that way. There's something about spiritual practice that allows you to transcend self. Now, if you're a Christian, you might fill yourself with God, so there's no place for you to be. If, there's, if you're Buddhist, you might just empty yourself, so there's no place for you to be. But there's this transcendence and selflessness which allows for service, it seems to me. And most spiritual paths seem to end in that way. And I thought that was fascinating. And I see in Buddhism how they sort of structure their practice to allow you to become empty but still be of service and not take credit or blame for the stuff that you do. You know. So when I was at Juvenile Hall, I went there for five years. I have a couple really nice-looking certificates on my wall saying I was there and did a good job. But as we talked earlier, I just showed up, you know, and did what seemed to be needed to do. And then I left, did something else. So not being who you think you need to be allows you flexibility. You know, you can become president, you can become movie star, CEO, mother. You can become anything you want to be because that doesn't really exist in the way people think it exists. It's sort of cool, and and I guess we can also be a Buddha if we practice because that may not exist either.
1: I guess we somehow carry this image of who we are around with us,
0: and we need to, don't we? And partake partake of things. Yes. And then the moment um,
1: something happens, I, I'm thinking of uh, um, an accident. A car is coming, and, um, well, I, I can think of one. I was jogging up the street, and was, the cars were coming, and there was a dog out there who was just didn't know what to do. And I just ran out, and I shushed the dog out of the street. And I didn't think. I just shushed it out of the street. And that was not me. And there are times when it's really not me that's doing something, but you know, I, I've always I, I've always said that it's it's something acting through me. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is the letting go of self.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But I I usually say that's God.
0: Let go, let God. I think that's one way of looking at it—that God's working through you. Now a Buddhist wouldn't say that, you know. But but yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Sure. And it feels sort of good not to have to be in charge, doesn't it? Yes, it does. (laughs)
1: Also, I'm thinking of um, sometimes when I'm sitting, doing a sit at home, and um, I, I have all kinds of different feelings, but then the one feeling of my body not being present. It's no body. No body is there. But there is a sense of something that lets me know that I'm conscious but I don't have my body is very immaterial uh-huh. uh, and and then I and I always think of that as being kind of the closest thing that I can get being alive to death mm. um, and uh, I don't know but it's a really good feeling, mm-hmm. and I think of that as kind of being uh, one with, going well, to do my own.
0: Of course. You can use your words, of course.
1: Yeah. I, I, I see it as being um, really a, a blessed time for me to be at one with, with, with the oneness of everything there, mm-hmm. uh, with my God. Who is, who is present, and I am present, and mm-hmm. we are present together. It, and it's it's a oneness, and it's a beauty, and it's a comfort, and it's, it's a good feeling. Yeah. And I want to come away uh, when, when I'm finished. I want to, I want to oh, I can't wait to do that again. Mm-hmm. But the next time, it doesn't happen
0: like that. Yeah, it never happens the same way twice, does it? Yeah. I, let me tell you a story. Um, oh, my gosh, I wish we had three hours. Uh, it's I was I was I was in a zendo and I was uh, a friend of mine and her name was Don had come to me with the zendo, come with me to the zendo and we were meditating and meditating and meditating and then the bell rang and it was over and she turned and looked at me and said did you see did you see I said what Don I was floating I was floating off the floor did you see it I said no I missed it I didn't see it. And, and then I went and thought about it. And, and this is what I think happens. This is just my own idea of what you talked about might be, according to Buddhism. That we all have an image, an internal image of our body, which is, is hard won, to say the least. That when we were small, we didn't think there was any difference between us and the wall. And you see these little kids walking to a wall. Well, they haven't figured out that that uh, there's a, a line that you can't cross when you have a body, your body, and then you have the world, your body, and then you have the world. And And as we grow up and get more skillful, we can actually not even look and pick up a cup of coffee and drink it and put it back without even looking at the coffee. We can read the paper, pick up the coffee, read it and, and why is that? Because we have this internal image of where our body ends and the world begins. We, can, we, ha- we have a sense of ourself, literally. Now we're meditating, and we're going to this deep state of concentration, and our body image starts to dissolve. And And now that knee that was on the floor and was hurting just a little bit, now that becomes a universal sensation. That's the universe, and that's just sensation. There's no longer a knee that hurts. Now the universe has sensation. And we have reconnected to the universe in that very special way. Our body no longer prevents us from being connected to everything. And I have felt that exact feeling you described. I have been there and it is so light and so comfortable to reconnect again and not be separate and not be separate. And and then as consciousness comes back into its normal form, well, we have to be able to stretch our leg and get up and if we don't have a leg, if it's just the universe and sensation, we're going to be just sitting there forever. So this little body image comes back, and now we reconstruct ourselves, and, and here we are. And we go, oh, man, back in the body again. But there was something wonderful about being free from it for a while. Now, we weren't free from the body. The body is what is our vehicle, and we're lucky to have it. We've got one of the best vehicles on Earth. When you look at the dogs and the cats and the fish and the snakes and the birds, our vehicle can do so much more than their vehicle can. Wow. But it's that image we carry with us that prevents us from reconnecting. It's not, not nothing to do with the body. It's that self-image. It's that physical image we carry with us all the time. And if we're able to let go of that, how wonderful is that? Yeah, and I think that's what... Perhaps the Buddha did in his nirvana. He just transcended all of that. And now his body was no longer his. It was the vehicle to be of service to others with. You know? Very cool. So Dawn, I'm glad she looked at me and said, Did you see me floating? Because that started this whole train of thought. Leaving the house and going down the tracks, you know. And that's what I came up with. It's not quite as as neat as leaving the body behind. But but I suppose when it's our time to drop the body, it's probably going to be better than we think. If we've had these little experiences, insights while we're still alive. There's probably nothing to fear at all. Yeah. yeah. That's good. <sighs> Anybody else? Jonathan? You got yeah. No? Just okay. Yeah.
2: Um, I think I get impermanence, and I think I get sorrow, guilt, or whatever really you want to phrase that. Uh-huh. But the no-self...
0: This is a tough one. A and, and what we'd have to say is we'd have to say, to correctly speak about it, we'd have to say not-self rather than no-self, though I find myself saying that occasionally. And what does not-self mean? That means that anything we think is self is not. And we can just have a whole laundry list of things that make up who we think we are. And each one we say, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. And then you come to this place, I'm not any of them. And so you are empty of an independent self. You are conditional You can't exist independently. And that's empty of independent existence. And that's what emptiness means in this sense. Empty of independent existence.
2: So, So the Buddha is not saying there is no soul. I mean, what I thought was it's like it's, he looked for a physical thing, and he did not find a
0: physical right. thing,
2: right. and so he said that there is no such thing. Right. But from a Jewish, Christian, Muslim perspective, they would say, but well, we're not talking about a physical thing." Yeah. So you're missing us, and we're missing you. I don't know which.
0: Yeah. So like when
2: the Russian first Russian went into space, and he said, "I'm up here, and and I don't see a God." And because most Christians well
0: god 's not up there right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it' it's, it started that way. it started with um, um, no soul because of um, an ethical problem and and the problem was if you had a soul and it was independent and it was reincarnated again, this is before Christianity, but it was reincarnated over and over again, uh, there would be uh, a possibility that in maybe some of the lifetimes you wouldn't take your actions very seriously because you could make up for it in future lives. And then this idea of nihilism, that that we don't have a soul, so it doesn't matter what I do because the end is going to be the same. And, and that's when I think it, it, it changed from not-self to, oh, pardon me, from no-self to not-self. That uh, there may be something there. And, 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 and I know for sure that I have a self. It's there. It's in place. And sometimes it drives people crazy. Um, but am I that self? Am I that process? And according to Buddhism, I would not be the process. But I couldn't deny the fact that it was there. And in the 50s and 60s, they used to talk about killing the self to reach liberation. Well, if all I have to do is kill the self, annihilate the self, and then I'll be free well, you also won't be functional. So that's not going to work very well either. So the idea is to look carefully and allow yourself to have the insight into not being who you think you are, but in a good, healthy way, in a way that liberates you, rather than freezes you in terror. You know?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one.
0: It's uh, a tough one.
2: You know, I because of my mom's Alzheimer's. I have dealt with other children, people with Alzheimer's, and one of the things that really upsets me um, is people who say I don't go visit her or him because he's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And I say, of course, this is this is the same mother that carried me. This is the same mother who taught me to walk. This year. how can you say she's not there? Yeah. And and if there's no permanent self of any sort, then we can say, yeah, that that person is not there. That self doesn't exist. And so there's no there's nothing I need to do for that person. I can do it for Mrs. X just as well as my own mom. It doesn't matter. Mm. Where is that? This is my result. Well,
0: and of course, the person that gave birth to you is dead. Mm-hmm. Because the woman lying in bed now is not that person. And the person that took you to school the first time is dead. And so why would you then, you know, if you if you write about that and say to yourself, well, what does it matter? You know, what does mom really mean? Well, you know, I had those feelings too. Uh, uh, but not, not in a skillful way. It was a very unskillful way. And, until I came to Buddhism. and And what... One of the verses in the Dhammapada says, if I'm not mistaken, that might not be the Dhammapada, but it goes something like this. Uh, Even if you were to carry your parents on your shoulders for the rest of your life, you still couldn't pay them back. So, so you have a duty to your mother. And that's an old way of looking at it because we now have rights. But in the Buddha's time, there weren't rights, there were duties. And there were duties of the children to the parents and parents to the children, employer to the employee. And so it's your duty. Now, doesn't that sound odd in 2007 to say it's your duty to take care of your mom? (laughs) Because you're not doing it because it's your duty. You're doing it because you love her and and you want to make her comfortable. You don't want her to suffer. You're her son. She's your mother. But in the Buddhist time, it was your duty. So whether she is the same person or not, whether there's a self there or not, it's your duty.
3: I think now it comes, because I've had my grandmother and my aunt, <clears> um, I call it Lost in the Labyrinth, and I think I got that from a title, a book, uh, a lady wrote about her mom.
0: Do they both have Alzheimer's? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
3: Oh, They're gone now. The but, um there's the emotional tie of these were the hands that took care of me yeah this was the face that looked at me with so much love yeah so when I had to bathe or change or feed I, I, she didn't know my name but it didn't matter to me yeah mm-hmm. so because I had transcended I mean anyway I mean it was hard at first but it gets to the point where this is still the human being that did everything yeah so, I don't... But I heard that many times. My brother was like that. That was his way of just not going through. That was his way of just not dealing with the urine smell inside the, the nursing home and et cetera, et cetera, Yeah. And I always thought it was a coward's way out. And I still do, but that's not going to
0: Well, we're all in different places, yeah. you know, and, um, and it's a difficult situation. For even the most enlightened person to be in, uh, Ken Wilber talks about taking care of his wife. One of the best really books, Grace and Grit. And uh, if you if you get a chance, through if you so, right? uh, pardon. Cancer, I think yeah, just gotten married, and and she was diagnosed on the honeymoon, if I'm not mistaken, with 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 cancer, and it was five or six years, uh, and they did traditional therapy, they did alternative therapy, and he was the caregiver, and see, the caregiver never gets any time off. The patient can sleep and you know take baths, but the caregiver is always there, always on call. And at one point, he thought about going to the gun store and getting a gun, but he couldn't figure out which one to kill, him or his wife, so he didn't buy it. And at the end of the book, she dies, and it's one of the most magical experiences that I've ever read. And every time I read that last chapter, I cry because he really did love her, and she loved him. And you saw that manifest in, in, in her passing. And what a powerful message that is. But even the most enlightened, even the ones who practice meditation and have written many books, can find being a caregiver almost too much. So at that point, I I have to say, yeah, it's difficult. And if some can't do it, yeah, it's difficult. And if some can do it, Yeah, it's difficult. (laughs) It sort of gets there, you know. And um, uh, my father died. He just, you know, he went to the hospital, and like five days later, he was dead. And it was just like, wow, you know. It wasn't gradual with him. I mean, he had prostate cancer, and it was getting better, it was getting worse, it was getting better, it was getting worse. He called up and said, I'm in the hospital for some tests. I call back, and the nurse says, are you a family member? Yeah, well, he's dead. I said, "Wow." He didn't say anything. Very interesting, you know. So sometimes um, when people transition, I suppose uh, we're called to duty, if you will, and uh, and now um, who's taking care of the person, and what's the person that we're taking care of? You know, is it a process? This this thing that was so beautiful in youth now turns out to be pretty repulsive in old age, the smells and the wrinkles and. But is that, is that what we were attracted to? Is that what we were attached to? or is there more to it than that? You know? It's fascinating. I think it brings us to a place of balance, ultimately.
3: It's, it's funny. I, I think it gets to the point where you go beyond the smells. There's a of course you do. I always got her essence. Yeah. And so the smell was just like living near an airport and, and hearing them. Or a
0: freeway. It's, it's, there. it's sound, it's smell, it's taste, it's touch, it's thinking. You know, It's it's the value we give to it. The image, the story we write about it. Yeah. But, it's, but it's hard to get there sometimes. It's hard to get there and mm-hmm. not smell the smell. Wow. Spirituality can sure get heavy sometimes. <laughs> well, our our night is done. We've traveled a long way tonight. At least it feels like that to me. And we have one more night to go next Thursday, the end of the journey. It, doesn't it go fast? I think we need to have six, eight weeks, you know, maybe a whole 12-week, 15-week series of... What's next after this one? This Well, next week we're going to talk about...
1: No, I wasn't thinking about that. Okay. I'm thinking about extending this
0: experience. Okay. You know what? Let's, let's talk about that next week. How can we take this experience with us and not just leave it in the classroom? Exactly. Okay.
1: And and also, um, suppose we would want to um, experience it uh, even more. Yeah. Then where would we
0: go? Well, I I, I know you're going to hate these words, but actually on my webpage that I put together (laughs) is a PDF file of Buddhist centers in California. And all you need to do is download it, and you have so many centers to pick from. Well, when but my, when my daughter comes, <laughs> <laughs> daughters are going to be busy. I got a feeling, you know. <laughs> good, but that's right. That that would be the next thing, you know. Uh, and and uh, so that that's good if you want to take it with you. It's it's and, but it's not bad if you don't, because most of you aren't ever going to be a Buddhist, but you are going to be human beings the rest of your life. And for me, Buddhism has always been about how to be a human being. So. There's so much overlap. There is. Thing. We, we talk about this. Uh,
2: we see it so overlapping with so much of what yeah.
1: so we've already um, we've come to believe.
0: Sure, come to understand to be true. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by it. And then when I see the differences, I go, "Well, yeah, unity and diversity."
3: And as Those. As it's always ironic that the the more you overlap, the more you get angry at your neighbor. <laughs> Where there's, you know, you had in history, um, you had uh, the Muslim religion respected by Christianity at one point, or vice versa, but if you were Protestant and you were Catholic, it'd be so it's like you're, when you're so, so close, yeah. you say, no, I'm, I just want to be this slightly different. There's more animosity. I'm always yeah.
0: Amazed. And you know why that might be? Because you see yourself in the other person. And you don't like it. <laughs> and yet if they're totally different, you know.
3: Yeah, then it's.
0: Then, then it's, it's not wrong. you, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. could be, it could be. <laughs> Well, thank you. And, and drive carefully on the way home tonight. And we'll see you next Thursday. Good. Yeah. Well, that's it. That was Class 4, Part 2 of a five-week class I taught at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. The title of the class was The Buddhist Eightfold Path Away to Happiness. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.